I am not an alcoholic. Uh, I knew I read a book one time, and maybe some of you may have read it, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, where he says anytime you keep your last name in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous is almost as bad as getting your picture in a paper. You can never find me in Cleveland if you're under Don C. So uh, with that, take it home with you. But you know, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. My home group is the Sister Ignatia group in Cleveland, Ohio. I started that group 36 years ago, and today happens to be the day they buried Sister Ignatia 36 years ago, and right now they're having a mass for her in Cleveland at the cathedral downtown. So I spent five years with that woman, and I'm very grateful for that. Can you hear me out there? No? Well, I don't know how much louder I can go. I'm running out of air. <laughs> uh, can we get the mics up any higher? But pull it closer to me. How's that? Better? Can you hear in the back? Okay, and uh, I've been sober a long time, but I didn't intend to stay sober. You know, I, I come here and, you know, I, I, it's like old home week with me today because everybody here, I've known them for years traveling around the country. And I, uh, I have to write their names down because I have senior moments at times. And, uh, but I, I certainly want to thank Camille and her husband who are both here, and, and Dick and his wife. And you know, his wife is something, Marlene. You know, she's that Al-Anon that did that dance. You know, and you know, I tell you, if we and her and I drank together, we'd had a hell of a time. I'd still be out there qualifying, you know. And I don't know where she'd be, but I might be dead, but she'd be out there. And, you know, we have a lot of common. Her and I are hairdressers. You know, she was a hairdresser. I was a hairdresser, past tense. Forty years I worked on women's hair, and I knew that somewhere along the line, when I was a young man, what I was going to do with my life. And I, we used to pitch a tent in a, over a clothesline and put bricks and hold the tent down so we made like a tent. And I wanted to be a gynecologist, the first girl I brought in there. <laughs> and it didn't work out that well. I became a hairdresser, you know. I, uh, I, there's a lot of other people here I want to thank that I know. Uh, Bob and, and uh, the Alateen, that young man did a nice job. And, and Marlene, that's the Alanon speaker. And Jim, who left, left here and went back to, to uh, Chicago, Orlando Park. And Jim and I have been friends. And, 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 and Don C., that's me. But... Uh, <laughs> I want to thank me, too, for making it here. <laughs> and I want to thank Burns Brady, a friend of mine of many years. You know, before I go any farther, I want you to know I'm a young man in an old container. I'll be 79 years old my next birthday. And I'm still alive and kicking, baby. <laughs> and I, uh, I just found out that Al... Uh, not that Al- works, I was going to say. Viagra works, you know, it just worked. I found that out. <laughs> And we're going to give it a hell of a try one of these days. I may die with a heart attack, but what a way to go, you know. <laughs> you know, I think it's just about that. To, you know, I was, uh, I've had a couple of heart attacks, open heart surgery. I've, I've had, I'd ran the gamut. My life has always been easy. But I'd never forget a while back, I think it was about a year and a half ago, two years ago, they took me out of my house with an ambulance. And it's, it's a stormy, cloudy day in Cleveland. We get some of those days, you know. And it just was after my son had passed away. And I, I, I just was in a bad mood, and I, I'm in the back of that ambulance, and you could see the, hear these sirens going, and, and I look up, I said, God, why the hell does this have to happen to me? He said, Cassini, there's something about you that just drives me crazy, and I don't know, know what. But, you know, I've, uh, 
I, I didn't, you know, I just got to tell you, I came from an all-Italian neighborhood, which is, a, and when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, there's no Italians in my neighborhood. We didn't have alcoholics because that was a bad word. We had drunks, and, and drunks was a better class of people because they'd do whatever they did, quit drinking, they would go to a wedding, their wives would holler at them, they'd stop drinking for a month, but an alcoholic just can't stop. And I didn't know nothing about that. I was, I was as I said, I, I came from a neighborhood where we had a lot of character defects, you know. I heard people talking about they, they got drunk because their fan belt on their Maytag washer broke or some damn thing, or they got their sensitive, you know. And if you're too damn sensitive, you're not going to make it in AA, I'll tell you the truth. And don't pat people on the back when they're doing wrong. Tell them the truth. It may hurt their feelings, but you may save their life. Think about it. And I, I didn't drink and didn't, and I, for you who don't remember that December 7th, 1941, they declared war. And I, I said, hell, I'll never go to that army. I'm 17 years old. And on March the 22nd, 1942, I was in the United States Army. And I didn't drink. Never drank. I hated wine. My father made wine. I'd have to press the grapes. And, and I hated it. And, and coming to think about it, I think somebody who talked about their family that had all these kids and 13 kids and they had not enough, maybe it was Marlene, not enough to eat. The mother would wait until everybody ate and they ate. And I hear kids today, their mother and father are so bad. I tell them, why the hell don't you go out and get a job? You don't need to stay with your father. Get a job. And they don't want to do that. That's right. They don't want to do it. Come home to mom and daddy. They'll take care of you. And one, one day they get to be 40 years old and the world is out there. They don't know what the hell's happening. And you know, they're going to become alcoholics anyhow because that's the easy line of least resistance. Anyhow, I didn't have no problems. I had a lot of character defects, so i got to tell you that. This pitcher of water is going to fall. And when I got to Fort Camp Perry the first day, I realized I made a grave mistake. Too much discipline there. And on the third day, I went over the hill for the first time, and I'll make my Army career short and fast and quick. We'll fast forward to this. I had 15 summaries, two generals were sentenced to the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, and did for two years with a dishonorable discharge. And this is a kid that only drank one time. I went to Joplin, Missouri. I met a girl. She talked funny. She was from Georgia. I talked funny. I was from the East. And we knew, I knew what we wanted. I thought she knew what we wanted. And, and I went to get booze, and there was no booze. Some of your older people remember alcohol. was went to war. So it was Lucky Strike Green. Lucky Strikes were green at that time. And when I went there, I wanted something to drink to make her sexy because alcohol was a social lubricant at the time. And I said to the guy, why don't we got to give me some Philadelphia, I think I asked for, because my dad drank that. He said, the war's on, all we got is this other stuff, and it was old Mr. Boston, creamy top slow gin. It looked like wine, so I said, give me two bottles. And I figured I can handle that. So I'm starting to go, and when, when we were young, we danced differently. Now, I think you got to dance here tonight or tomorrow night, maybe tonight. And when you watch these kids dance and the lights are flashing and they have got on that dance floor, they haven't touched the girl all night yet. See, they're just out there shaking. The lights are flashing. And if they go to four dances in a month, they haven't touched the girl all night. What a waste of time. You know, you got to think about it. <laughs> and, and when I was young, we danced differently. We held the girl close to us. You knew what you had. You could feel it almost, you know. <laughs> and if you watch AMC movies, you dip. You know, you dip them down a little bit easy, and they hang on tighter. Then you know you got a girl in your arms. And we were sipping on that gin and dipping. Oh, we were sipping and dipping. And we kept on a sipping and dipping. 
And pretty soon, 11.30, we've been sipping and dipping. I got the program. She hasn't got a clue. I think she was one of those girls that followed the camps. I don't know. Or she'd dump it in in a gash can. But anyhow, I remembered something. And everybody's got a computer. And something you heard this weekend at one of these conferences may stay with you for the rest of your life. And one day when you need it, it'll be pulled up. Because you can store things in your memory. You know, if they ha- you saw somebody get killed by a car and you saw the license plate and you forgot it, under hypnosis they can pull a license plate number up out of your head. So anyhow, we had every neighborhood, Italian neighborhoods had them. I don't know if you American neighborhoods had them. We had a guy that knew everything. He would teach you how to caddy at the golf course. He'd teach you how to smoke cigarettes. He'd teach you how to roll the cigarettes. He'd teach you anything you needed to know. And he said, when you're dancing with a girl and you want to make her sexy, blow in her ear. So sip, dip it, and blow. Sip, dip it, and blow. <laughs> And I wound up in Springfield, Missouri, and didn't know how I got there. First shot out of the barrel, I drank. I thought I was drugged. I really did. I thought she drugged me. And, you know, at that time, in 42, all you need to do is have a dog tag number, write it out that you got married, sign somebody to witness it, and that was it. And she got an alimony, a check. And then I went back to camp. We were paid $21 a month, and some of you might remember that. Today, I think they get 1000 a month, and hell, they're not even getting shot at yet. And, you know, we were getting shot at. And anyhow, uh, the guy said, well, Cassini, you got married that weekend. I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. He said, that's why the allotment check is out. So I got $11 when somebody got $10. And I went around talking to everybody, told them my whole tale of woe. Nobody believed me. They laughed at me. You know, I was an idiot. So four months later, after I talked to a priest, he found out this girl was a very patriotic American. She married four or five guys that same weekend. And, you know, my mother didn't raise no fool. I didn't want to even know what the, if I was first, second, or third on that honeymoon. It was a different era, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I finally got that straightened out, and I went on, and I got in a lot of trouble, you know, because I had these character defects. I, I was not drinking, except that one night when I drank with her, and, uh, and I kept on going. I finally was sent to the Leavenworth Penitentiary for something that they do. I didn't even need a court-martial. I was guilty going in. And I know that, and I got to the penitentiary, and I was Italian, you know, and the penitentiaries are full of Italians because they don't like to take orders, especially federal penitentiaries. And when I got there, I had an uncle that was part of an outfit called, uh, I think they called them uh, Cousin Osler, but it was the Mafia. And, you know, I'll tell you, AA is like the Mafia, because if you leave here, you're dead, and there's no two ways about that one. <laughs> Anyhow, I... Uh, I, I was just having a good old time. I was at that penitentiary, and they did, we slept in barracks, not like the Leavenworth, real Leavenworth, you know. This was the Army Federal Prison. And after about eight months there, uh, they came by and they said, you know, you guys are getting a dishonorable discharge. Your life is going to be unbearable without a discharge. And I, I knew mine was unbearable because my father wouldn't even let my mother write to me. I was a bum in his eyes because he fought in World War I. So I said, they said, who wants to volunteer? We need some guys that are little nutsy, got guts, and we're going to send you over to special training. And if you want to go, put your hand up. I put my hand up. And I only weighed about 128 pounds at that time. I was small. And, but we went and we had special training down through Tennessee and then through Fort Knox, Kentucky. And, and we were, became what was known as the Armed Special Forces at that time, which is equivalent to the Raiders. And we had to go in long before the first wave would go in and find out where they were entrenched, where their signals were coming from, and we had to go in at night. 
and you had to cut through that jungle, you know. And, you know, I got to tell you, I was scared. There's no two ways about it. I'm not going to tell my hero. If you fought in the war and you know what a real war is, uh, you know, there's times you wish you get killed because you want to just get out of that out war. You just don't want to be there no more. And we went into the first two islands, and I was there with my cousin Mikey, whose brother was bad. I was the guy that had a lot of connections with that mafia. And uh, we went in, and it was a very, you know, the odds, if, if you went in with 12 scouts and, and uh, eight come back, that was a good day. You know, and if more come back, it was a miracle. And, you know, and we went made two major invasions. On a third major invasion, we went in late at night, and we were cutting through the underbrush there, and, and we got finally to a cave, and we were going in with grenades and, and flamethrowers. And, and uh, we're walking in there, and my cousin Mikey was arm's length away from me, and I said, Mikey, let's go in with the grenades first, sort of scare the hell out, and then we'll go with the throwers. And as he starts to move forward, he stepped out of landmine and it killed him and blew me all to hell. And the first word out of my mouth after not thinking about God for many years, I said that I could hurt bad enough to go home. And the corpsman said, you're going home, kid, no help. And I said, thank you, God. Now, that's the first time I thought of God, really. Even after the priest found out that girl was very patriotic, I didn't thank God, I thanked the priest, you know. But that was the way it went. I went to Hawaii for a major surgery, then on to California, because they had taken over the Pasadena General Hospital, and I stayed there and I had to learn how to walk, two more surgeries, and uh, I was not doing well. And finally I got discharged and I stayed there. I didn't come back because I fell in love with California. You know, I came from a town where everything was steam sh smokestacks, factories and industry, railroad yards around me, and I tell you, the girls in California look gorgeous. They look good. And where I came from, they all wore babushkas and galoshes, and they were, played EIL music all the time, and I didn't like that. So I, I just stayed there. And I got some menial jobs, because my dad always said, if you want something in life, you're going to work for it. Work for it. And he meant it. And if you want a car, you'll buy it yourself, because if you smash it up, I'm not fixing it anyhow, so it's your car. And if you're going to go get a job, you better do what you're going to do, and you practice well what to do. So in the meantime, I thought what I was going to do, and, and pretty soon one day they were going to organize the studios, and these same guys came out there, they're all Italians, their names were Naval, and they came from Detroit, St. Louis, Chicago, and my cousin Bad, I said to me, go over there and, and volunteer to be a, an organizer. And I didn't know what an organizer did, and they said, you stand by a gate, and when they decide to come through, bop them on the head, don't let them get through. Well, about that time, I was invincible. Nothing could kill me, I'd went through all that other crap, so I got to be an organizer. And when it was all done, they took us to the Ambassador Hotel and they asked us what kind of a job we'd like. And the one guy said, I want to be a plumber. I want to be a grip man. Who wants to be a bricklayer? Who wants to be this? And this little swarty Italian, about that high, you see him on Sopranos sometimes. And it's short and they got big hats, banana yellow AAA shoes. And he said, hey kid, what kind of a job you want? And I said, I want to be a hairdresser. He said, what's the matter? You crazy? Them people are funny. I said, don't worry about it. I know all about it. So I said, that's my cousin Bad. I said, Bad, I said, let him go. He's nuts. Now, I got to tell you why I wanted to be a hairdresser, so you don't get any funny ideas. <laughs> I wanted to be a hairdresser because in 1940, I met a couple guys. I used to like to go to dances. I met some guys, and I said, hey, Mike, where you been? He said, I'm going to Elizabeth Carter's dress designing school. He said, there's 80 girls to maybe three guys. I said, mean, can I go to that school? I want to join. He said, no, he said, you go to beauty school because there's 102 girls to three guys there. He said, and I figured that one out. Even a blind chicken will get a kernel of corn once in a while. <laughs> so I went out and got some corn. 
I went for 30 days, didn't learn nothing, just picking corn. And I went back. I went back again in 41 for 30 more days, just picking corn, didn't learn nothing. And then I went back in 42, just before I went to the army in March, and I had 30 days there. And that's all I knew. I didn't know a comb from a brush. I didn't know nothing. But you know, I was very fortunate. I went to work for 20th Century Fox for Helen Hunt, and she took a liking to me. Something about a, an alcohol, Italian drunk, you know, they're comical. They could be funny and have a good time. And she liked me. Now, you know, just like me, he was a nice guy. She thought I was funny. I don't know why, but... And she took time to show me. And then she took time to get starlets to bring them in so I could practice on their hair and to help myself learn. And one day after about nine, ten months, all the practicing, like my dad said, you know, you serve an apprenticeship. We didn't have that. When I came to A, we served an apprenticeship. Five years. And once after the fifth year, the work began. And now, today, they come and they come out of treatment centers and within two weeks, they know more than people here 10 years. Because they got all the words, all the words. I'm sensitive. I need a little Prozac. My inner child is bothering me. And I found the guy's inner child in Buffalo. I flushed it right down the damn toilet. And if you got one, beat him up, get him out. Anyhow, I woke up one day and she said to me, okay, you're going to start doing hair star, movie stars, hairs, and first picture I worked on was Centennial Summer with Linda Darnell and Jeannie Crane and you know when my name went up on that screen Hairstyles by Don Cassini I want to tell you something there's in our book it says you got to smash that ego and I didn't I had a little bit of an ego because most Italians are born with that and then I saw that there and I that ego really grew and I was making more money now than my father made in a month I made it in a week so what do you do? You went out and buy nice clothes. You're a big shot now. And I went out and bought myself. There was no cars during World War II, if you remember. And I went out and bought a car befitting to a nice Italian boy like me. I bought myself a 39 Buick Roadmaster with the wheels on the sides. And long before you people knew what gangster white walls were, I had them on my car. <laughs> and I would drive down Hollywood Boulevard. And if I see the girls, the windows would be rolled up. And I'd roll them up like I had air conditioning. If they got in the car, I'd say, that damn fan belt broke again. That air conditioner's off, you know. I know that was all ego. And, you know, I didn't drink yet. I didn't drink yet. And one day I'm waiting for a kid on the corner of Hollywood and Varn where Billy Berg owned the Billy Berg Swing Club from Cleveland. And I walked in there, and I, these guys didn't show up. And I followed two girls in. Just like magnetic rays, they dragged me in there. And they smelled good. They looked good. And, you know, and I started to develop another disease. It was called neons and nylons. And, man, I want to tell you, <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And I went in there, and these, this kid, Hank Martino, didn't show up. And, and finally, I'm sitting there, and these girls, I'm to figure, how am I going to talk to these girls? Because all I drink is Coca-Cola yet. And, you know, at that time, Coca-Cola had cocaine into it. I didn't know that, see. But I drank it, and they charged the same thing for Coca-Cola. I bought a drink. So I sat down, and those girls ordered a drink in a small glass like we got here now, and it had something in it, I don't know. So I said to the guy, he said, what do you want to drink? And I didn't know what to order. So I said, give me what they're drinking. Now, you know, I took that one drink with impunity, and nothing happened. I didn't get taller. I didn't get better looking. I haven't changed much since then. You know, and uh, I told you, I'm a young man in an old container. But it just didn't change me. But it, it made me feel good. And that's what the book says. Most people drink for the effect. 
And I didn't get any better, nothing, and I didn't go out and drink some more the next day, but in a matter of six months, I was drinking pretty good. And the same people who got me into the studios in 1947 got me out of the studios, you see, because they wanted this to have a, there was no wire service, and I had to set up people to be stung, movie stars. And they had bought, built these phony bookie joints. If you saw the movie Sting with Paul Newman, that's about exactly the way it happened. And during the course of the night when the phony bullets were being shot and the blood was popping on everybody's shirt, and I said to these guys that I lost all the money, get up to Lake Tahoe and stay there until this thing clears over. And then my cousin Badai came to me and he said, now you get out of town because you're going to go to the can. And I didn't want to go to jail and I came back to Cleveland. And when I got to Cleveland, I found the same thing. I didn't like authority. And now I run around here. And Cleveland was a great city at that time. And I run around and I don't want to stay here because I hate authority. My mother wants to know why you come along with foreign crony with lipstick on your shirt. I say, Ma, how did you have your children? What happened? Didn't know nothing? And my father would say, shut up, bastard. <laughs> he was not a nice guy. <laughs> but he just couldn't understand. And, you know, then I went to New York City. My uncle, again, was one of them guys. And he owned the Tavern on the Green, the Piccadilly Circus Barn, and the Theater Barn Grill on Times Square. And I drank there. I couldn't get in the union. And finally one day he said, you know, I'm, you better call your father. I want you to go home because you're getting to be a crumb bum. Now, they were talking now in 1946, 47. And nobody knew what Alcoholics Anonymous was then. It was brand new. And he knew I was a crumb bum. And I said, give me in the union. I'll go to work. I want to work. And I liked the work, because I worked all the way up until I was 70 years old. And, you know, I, I just wanted to work. And finally they got me in, and I went aboard the steamship lines with Helen the Hunt, I mean Helena Rubenstein as a hairstylist. Now, when I got on those cruise ships, my whole life changed. I would start drinking every two and a half to three hours, four to six ounces of vodka. And I'd work every day. And I started to develop something we don't hear in AA today. We don't hear about shame, conscience, self-respect, dignity. We don't hear none of that stuff. Conscience will drive you to drink. And your conscience will take you out of AA and it'll keep you in AA if you use it properly. This war was based on free will until those girls decided that Eve decided to talk to that snake. And the snake said, you can eat the apple. He told me Adam could eat the apple. Adam ate the apple. Instantly we went to free will and that's why we're in such a mess today. Well, I come to think of it, this sign should read, all men and women of faith have courage. How about the women in that thing? Should they be up there? <laughs> if you got time, send that to general service and tell them to put it in a new book because they missed the boat. When I came to A, there weren't too many women coming in. <laughs> and they weren't pretty either. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, I start cruising on these ocean-going liners and I start falling in love. And, you know, and I find these married women who were having marital problems after the war. And, you know, and then I started to get the conscience. I would have to drink to drink in the morning. I wouldn't I do it. I was a married woman. And then the conscience kicked in and I'd drink some more. And then start on. Then I could rationalize. Well, if she's married and I'm single, that's not adultery, right? That's good rationalization. And I kept on going. So I started getting more and more in trouble. I got in trouble in England because I didn't, they didn't pay the war debt. First of all, my father didn't like him, and if he didn't like him, he's right. I don't like him either. I got in trouble in France, and again, the same thing, just drinking and shooting my mouth off. And my father didn't like the French people either. 
So what the hell? Why should I like them? I don't say this in Montreal too much because I got in trouble there too. <laughs> but then I got in trouble in Italy. Now when you get in trouble in Italy and you're Italian, you got a problem. Big problem. So on December 20th, 18th or 19th, I pulled into Pier 48 on the Canard Line and I decided I'm going back to Cleveland because maybe my mother can help me with my drinking. Something's got to help me. I'm not a drunk yet. I'm just working every single day. I'm making money. I got a beautiful uniform, ship storage uniform. Watch Love Boat, magnify that by 10 times. That's what I had going for me. And I had a great time. But this is where I get into Cleveland that night and I, I don't, I'm not drinking. I'm just having, I just don't want to. And I got no overcoat, nothing. And I, uh, I go home and I tell my mother, maybe, Mom, I want to quit slow down drinking. I got that ocean-going liners and all that fast life is too much. So she didn't know what to say, so she started now with the people on television, that radio, we didn't have TV yet, just got TV. And the radio lady would come on and she'd say, there's a young boy in Cleveland whose mother thinks he's drinking too much, let's pray for him. And I'd say, Ma, what are you bothering these people for? <laughs> so then they'd keep on going. And I went to work for a guy in Cleveland who became a very prominent hairdresser. And then I started doing TV shows and I'm drinking more. I'm running a shop downtown with Bound with Tellers, 25 women. Now I'm in hall of heaven, man. And I'm having a good time drinking. And then one day my uncle came by and he said, Doc, he says, you're drinking too much. He said, if you ever want help with your drinking, give me a call. And I said, I know what a drunk looks like. He said, if you ever want help, call me. I want to tell you here and now today, and I'm a firm believer of this, I was talking with the tapers about this, I believe people are coming to AA too soon. And it's not in my words, it says in the big book, if you haven't had enough, drink some more. You've got to suffer the pains and the pains and pangs of alcoholism. And some, a couple of the speakers talked about it today. You've got to reach that point. And in the big book it tells you that. And he, my uncle walked away from me. And I didn't know nothing about it. My uncle came in the A in 1941. Never mentioned to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. If he had mentioned it, I'd have thought he was swearing at me. And he walked away. Because I want to tell you, at that time, I'm from Cleveland where he was almost born, that men, those men thought Alcoholics Anonymous was a jewel. And for you people who are new today, I ask you, hold that jewel of Alcoholics Anonymous in your hand and polish it like a gem. Because one day, if you don't do it, you're going to blow it. You're going to lose it. And my uncle walked away from me, and I could understand why. I just screwed this whole thing up. And then my mother starts with the heaters, you know. I don't know if you got any heaters down here. Where are we at? What state is this? Where am I at? <laughs> what? Indiana. Indiana. Yeah, you probably got some. <laughs> Anyhow, there's one in Pittsburgh, and... And my mother made me go there, and I went there, and I got dipped, and I got bopped. And nothing happened. I come out, I wanted to drink some more. And then we tried it with Rex Humbart in Cleveland, Akron. He started that big cathedral. And I went there, and I got dipped and bopped, and nothing happened there. And then Billy Graham came to the stadium in Cleveland, 70,000 people up in them stadiums. And my mother was so proud when I meant to make my altar call. I wasn't surrendering nothing. I just wanted my mother happy. I got dipped and bopped, and some guy takes me on the side. He wants to carry me a message, and I said, call me at home. I gave him a number of somebody I didn't know. <laughs> and I just walked away. 
And then we had another preacher come there. You may get him here in Indiana. His name is Ernest Angeli. And he was brand new in Akron. And I said to my mother, how can this guy help me? My, he can't even grow hair on his head. That wig was so bad. You know, now he's got a nice wig, you know. And, you know, dipped and bopped and it didn't work. And I continued on my merry way. I got married in 52. And November 8th, I was celebrating my 50th wedding anniversary. And I haven't seen that girl since 49 years ago. Someone gave me my pictures, and I don't even remember my wedding. And we spent nights looking at it, my sisters and I, just laughing. And all the guys were in my bridal party are still alive. But you know, it was just ironic. I'd never remember the wedding. It was a big wedding. And then I would go on after that, and she divorced me. We had new, I opened up a new beauty salon, and we're starting to make money I'm for it. And she married me because I was exciting. I was exciting. I, I wish I was. And then all of a sudden, 14 months later, she wants a divorce. And I said, why? She said, the excitement is killing me. I said, good. Now I can drink the way I want to drink. And she said, you're a drunk, and I didn't make you a drunk. You poured every drink down your throat yourself. See, I want to become a victim. And victimization will kill you. And then I found another Irish girl, you know, and she... And I, I'll tell you one thing about Irish. They know how to drink. They drink if the shade goes up, the shade comes down. If the grass grows... Grass don't grow, dogs bark, cats meow, she don't care. So I went out, she didn't drink, son of a gun. So I didn't know what to do. I took her home early and said she'd get rest to go to work. And one day we decided to run away and get married. I ran away 19 miles from one of my salons. Big long run. <laughs> and you know why? Because suddenly I started to have that unfounded, ungrounded fear. There was no alcohol where I was going. And until you get to them points, the unfounded, ungrounded fears that they talk about in the big book, when you don't know what you're afraid of, and you're afraid. If you think you're running out, did you ever see a drunk that had a bottle that was half full of whiskey? Everything is half empty. My life had become half empty. I have now three beauty salons. I employed almost 60 people at that time, working every single day and drinking on a maintenance program. And what happened... We decided to get married, and we ran away, and I didn't go meet my father-in-law for a couple of weeks because I was ashamed. Inwardly, I knew that there was something wrong with me. Just to remember this, nice people don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous. If we stay here long enough, we become nice. If we didn't have character defects, we wouldn't be in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're trying to solve your problem by inventorying alcohol, forget it. Because alcohol is not your problem, it's been your solution. Alcohol's been your solution. It made you do the things you wanted to do. Underneath all what you thought you were doing was the underlying character defects that made you do it. And you know, I don't hear so much of that in AA today. Maybe my book was different, I don't know. Could have been. But you know, I was starting to feel the pains of alcoholism. And I just walked away. And I went to meet my father-in-law on Thanksgiving in 1954. And he uh, looks at me and he sees me drinking out of a water glass of vodka. And he said, hey, kid, if you keep on drinking like that, you're going to get sick and you're going to lose your wife, you lose your businesses, you lose everything. And you know what this smart little Dago says? Go down to Collin and see my uncle. You can start your own Holy Roller Church. Because Holy Rollers were getting big at that time, you know. And he looked at me and said, Kid, if you ever want help, call me. My father-in-law came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939, right after the book was printed, 
and he lived in New Jersey and went to New York to Sam Schumacher's Oxford group and got sober. Never told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. I was just telling the tapers, I haven't put anybody in the hospital in over 12 years. I don't think any of them that are that sick yet. And if they're sick, I'll get them to the emergency room. I will. But if they're coming in there because they got a little stomach ache or they had too much marching powder, you know, or they just had a little pain in their stomach and they want some pills to make it easy, I just don't buy. I just, you want to come with me, I'll take you for a ride. Some of the kids in the back, there's a bunch back there. I got a couple of them coming off of Vicodin and all that crap. I don't know about But I made them go to the doctor and they taper it off. And today they're doing very well. They, they got no more shakes. And when you shake, come sober and alcoholics anonymous, you shaked. You couldn't hold a cup of coffee. You ever heard of the old timers tell you? They give you half a cup of coffee so it wouldn't spill. And you know, I was not doing well. January 1st, 1956, 56 I think it was, I wound up in a mental hospital. I had DTs and convulsions and my wife wouldn't call her father. She didn't want him to turn him to know that he, she married a drunk. My sister wouldn't tell my uncle because she didn't want her full family to know that her brother was a drunk. And there I was in the mental hospital. And I got treated in there with peraldides and straps. If people have not had the pleasure of drinking peraldehyde, I hope they bring it back because it's a treatment. <laughs> and you fall asleep for eight, ten hours and the room stinks, nobody wants to come near you. And these big ward boys come down and they strap you down and you make you drink that peraldehyde and then you fall asleep, they loosen the straps up. And when they come by, I say, you know something? You guys don't understand it. I'm running for state representative and the minute I win, your job is gone. <laughs> and they told me, don't worry about it, kid. We've got three more state representatives down the hall. We ain't getting out of here for a long time. So I just kept on going, you know. And one day they sent me to occupational therapy. And, you know, occupational therapy was singing with an old lady. She played the piano. She volunteered her time. God bless her. And the only thing she said, and the guy told me, request all the songs you request, the quicker you get out of here. So I requested songs from World War One, World War Two, and he get your gun over there, over there. And they finally marked enough things, and I got out. And when they got me out of there, they gave me a big bottle of wonder drug called Milton. Dr. Burns knows about them, probably. And it was the wonder drug of the time, and I took them for two days, and I was goofy. I fell asleep at a railroad crossing because it made me sleepy. The guardrails we had none at that time on that crossing. The whole front end of that car shook. I threw it in reverse. Go over to my mother's house and call the psychiatrist. I said, do you think I can have a little wine with my spaghetti? Because it's pretty bad. He said, well, he said, how long haven't you drank? I said, 16 days. He said, oh, you can have a glass of wine, but only one glass. So I took that one glass. It didn't last long. Within a month, I was back to drinking a fifth of vodka or better a day. And that was the end of that experiment. And I continued to drink. And I was continuing to build beauty salons. My wife had one boy, and I knew it was at the hospital when the baby was born. I was drunk, and I, didn't, I wasn't drunk. I didn't drink to get drunk. I, I, want that. I, worked, I worked every single day. I drank to get level. You know, I didn't want to go to the moon like you do with these new pills. You go to the moon and you hit the ceiling and bounce back down. Boom, give me some more. All those pills they take, these guys, they cost $20. You steal a microwave, $20. Steal this, I think that's all it costs for a hit a crack. And I, we had wine and whiskey, you know. And I just couldn't take no more. And I kept on going. And finally I got two children. Then I got three children. Never changed a diaper, never did nothing. 
All I did was bring money home. And by 1961, I had exhausted everything I wrote while I couldn't take it anymore. I was sick. And, and the, the first time I tried, called, I called one time. My wife says, call that program that was on television. And I called that program, and I dialed the phone, and I put it down after I dialed it because I made the call like she wanted, right? Didn't talk to anybody. <laughs> and finally one day in, in the end of 1960, this guy came by me, and he said, uh, come on, Doc, I want to buy you a drink. And I hated him. Hate. Italians do not resent... Because I've never heard of that word resent until I come to A. We have hate, and if hates don't work, we go right to vendettas. And we just stay there. It's easier when you feeling, refeeling, you know? And he came in, he says, come on, I want to buy you a drink. So I went either to drink that morning, or I went to a bar, it was 9 o'clock in the morning. He drank six cups of black coffee, and he told me a story, just like Bill told Bob. He came to me, I didn't call him. And he came to me and he said, Doc, he said, you know, you're drinking too much. And I said, Ted, I hate you from Las Vegas. That's two years. I hate good. And he said, well, I got to tell you something. You, don't, you didn't see me no more because I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, that's the first time I heard that word. But he was buying drinks. I was drinking Benedictine and Brandy's to get my stomach cooled down. And he started telling me this story. And he said, I said, what makes you think I might be that one of them things, Doc? Ted, he said, well, he said, I'll tell you. If you walk like a duck and you quack like a duck, there's a pretty good chance you might be a duck. So I said, what do you want from me? He said, you come with me tonight and I'll take you to a Saturday night and I'll take you to a meeting. And if you don't like it, there's three doors in the back. Just get up and leave. You're not chained there. And I tell that to people I take to meetings today. If you're not happy here, just get up and leave. you got to drink some more to become happy. And you got to go to jail. Sometimes jails are nice. They're comfortable. You don't have to work. You get three squares a day. You know, sometimes you find a guy with a little lipstick he puts on from Kool-Aid, you know. What a, what a life you got. You know, we laugh about it, but it's true. It's true. Anyhow, I just kept on going and going. And he finally said, I'll meet you there. Now, about this time, I did 176 weeks of TV, live. We had no tape. And I had to drink to get downtown because when the compulsion sets in, only a real alcoholic knows what that feels like, the clammy sweats, the crepe pains in your stomach, your leg cramps, and that's what starts the compulsion. Now, if you're here tonight and you haven't drank in two days, you don't have a compulsion any longer. You have a mental obsession. Read your book. That's what it says in the book, I think, the doctor's opinion, but don't read that because it's not that important. Don't have page numbers. It's in phony Roman numbers, you know. But if you want to look at it, look at it. It won't hurt you. And, you know, some of them pages were put there so they could call it the big book, you know, make it thicker. <laughs> you know, but don't read them. Don't read them. Anyhow, it got bad, and I had a drink to get downtown, so I had to take out a, I had a 59 caddy, I had a glass windshield washer bottle, held a gallon of water, and I cleaned it out, and I filled it up with vodka, and my wife had one of those bags with a long hose on it in the bathroom. I don't know what it was for. I cut the hose off. Some of you girls know, huh? <laughs> I cut the hose off. I ran it through the firewall, hooked it up on the outside of that windshield washer bump because them power, power, powerful windshield washers we had that time would blow the thing right over the top of you. And I had that aimed right for the underneath the dash it would come. And I put the hose in my mouth and I got compulsion to drink. 
I would drive down there, and if I was going to the TV studio and I needed that drink, if I was going past the cop that was directing traffic, I could put the hose in my mouth, hit the windshield washer button, get two hot shots of vodka, and I could wave to the cop. He didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and if you see somebody going down Jefferson or whatever street we came in here, and he's got a hose in his mouth, follow him. You're going to get here soon. <laughs> he's due to come here. And that's what i become. i become. I went to that first meeting, and, you know, our guy became General Motors president, vice president. He got his wife back. He got Cadillacs. He got a home up in the hills. He's got a yacht. He's got a home in the woods. And, hell, I ain't got nothing no more. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. IRS wants me. I wrote a federal withholding tax check out in Vegas. And they're not too fond of doing that because you can go to jail for that. And they were looking for me, but I wasn't looking for them. I was running. And everything was closing in. And uh, I just didn't know where to go. And what, I went to that meeting, and that guy was telling me about how he got the General Motors contract and how everything he got. And I got a wife, and the guy said to me, he said, well, what's the matter with you today, Doc? I went out halfway through. We should have had an intermission, but they didn't have it. And I went out halfway through, stuck the hose in my mouth, got a couple of shots of vodka, went in fortified, ready to fight them A&As. The guy said to me, a couple guys that had over 60 years now, Jack Ball and Eddie Gordon, they said, what's the matter, kid? I said, you know something? I like you guys. I like your China cups and all that crap, but I can't stand, look at my wife, will you? How can I stand living with her? And they said to me, keep coming back, she'll get better. That's over 41 years ago, and she has not got better. <laughs> that was the first lie they told me. Never told it after that. Okay, they took me to Rosary. My sponsor, I called him one day, and I'm totally yellow. I can't put my pants on. My eyeballs are yellow. My Everything is yellow. My feet were swelled up. I cut my tennis shoes to get them in. I tied ropes like the hobos used to do, because I remember I was young on the railroad tracks, and it tow, tied it in because I couldn't tie my butt in my belt, pants. And I called the doctor, and the doctor nurse, she said, come on in at 1.30, the doctor be here. And I called that doctor, and I played golf with him the night before, and we went to the bar, we were drinking, he had a shot of vodka in his hand, and I had a bottle of beer. Why I drank beer that night, I don't know. And I said, Doc, do you think maybe I might have a little bit of liver trouble? I heard that at a meeting. And he said, taps me, he said, nah, he said, eat too many green apples on the golf course. Well, I bought that, doctors know best. And then he, I said something else, and, and it got progressively worse. And I'm scared, I'm scared. And finally at 1.30 I walked in there, and he looked at me and he said, you got to go to the hospital, You've got your liver's blown out of proportion. He said, I said, well, I can't go, i got Labor Day weekend, i got 125 checks to write out, we didn't do it with computers, we did them by hand. He said, don't worry about the checks, you won't be around here next week to do them. And you know doctors lie. And I figured, well, hell with him. So then he said, I'm going to call your wife. He said, before I do that, I'm going in to fill a prescription, and when I come back, I want you to give me an answer. He went to fill that prescription, and like some of you may be counting ceiling tiles and floor tiles, there's no to count the squares on the rugs. He came back and he said to me, what are you going to do? And I said something I had heard at a meeting. I said, I'm going to call my sponsor. And I don't know where that word came from. It was something I was counting ceiling tiles and floor tiles. And those three times I went to him with a meeting, I heard about Sister Ignatia gives you all you want to drink, and that was true. 
I heard that if you were wanted for any kind of a crime, they couldn't take you out of there until you did your six days, six days and five nights. And I heard that if anything. And then I knew I was wanted by the IRS, and I was comfortable in those. They couldn't get me out of there. So they took me down to Rosary Hall, and my, they got my sponsor's wife on the phone, and she said, I want you to know Ted's been waiting for this call. Now I want you to listen to this, because it doesn't happen that often any longer. Sister Ignatia harped in our brain that when you're sponsoring somebody, you're charged with their life. I don't know if that makes sense to you. You are charged with their life. So you give it the best you got. And if you haven't got anything to give, please, don't pat them on the shoulder and say, you're doing good. Tell them. And my sponsor was putting Interstate 90 in Dunkirk, New York, which is about, right now it's two and a half hours on the freeway to there. And he was, he was a road-building contractor. And his wife got him on the phone. He was on ship to shore. We didn't have a cell like he had now. And if he had been out another 100 yards, he'd never got the call. But he came in. He called my doctor. And the doctor told him what was wrong. He said, I'll call you right back. He called Sister Ignatius, told Sister Ignatius how bad the doctor told him I was. And Sister Ignatius said, bring him in. Now, that was about 3.30 when he called him. And when I got back, my sponsor drove from Dunkirk, New York, to Cleveland, Ohio, on Old Route 20, to get me into Rosary Hall at 11.15 at night, because he knew that a drunk can die at any given hour of the day. Now, if you should be a counselor here, don't get mad at me. But if you're one of these nine to five counselors and there's no place to go in Cleveland, we don't have no more treatment centers. What do you do after five o'clock when these social workers go home? They may have to go get a job pumping gas part-time to augment their pay. I don't know. But, you know, we were opened all night long. And I, she stayed there, and when I got there, she looked at me and she said, Young man, if you make the night, it's a miracle. And with that, they called Father Winchester in. Father Winchester is in Dr. Bob's book, and the good old timers. And he gave me last rites, and I went into a coma, and immediately I was shipped up to intensive care. And I was sick. I was tapped five times. They took out seven liters or seven, whatever it is, of water. I went from 176 pounds down to about 114. I couldn't eat. I was fed intravenously. And they would send the men, the giants of Alcoholics Anonymous, up. When I come to AA, some of the first 75 men that came in of the first 200 or 250 were still around. And they would come in, and those were our counselors. They knew what they were talking about because they had walked the walk, and they suffered the pain. And they knew what they were talking about. And Sister Ignatius said, this is big business for these men. It's not money business. It's saving lives. Alcoholics Anonymous saves lives. And I was in the coma. And then one day I come out of the coma. And they put me in step-down unit. And they, she starts sending the giants of AA up there to talk to me. And I was there until October the 28th, from August 31st. And when I came out, I was sick. My, I had to sign a power of attorney because they didn't think I'd live. I gave my wife everything, eight beauty salons, a school, two Cadillacs, a home, three children, and I did it under due, not even under due rest. I knew I was going to die, and I just didn't want out because when I went into that coma, I had an out-of-body experience, and I didn't want to come back here. I didn't want to come back. I hated Dr. Perchin. I hated Sister Ignatia. I hated everybody, and throughout that time, in that two months, they would wheel me down to learn how to say the Our Father, and we said the rosary every day at 3 o'clock. People would come from work and say the rosary at 3 o'clock. 
And during the course of the time, my life, I was not mad. I was not, I hated God because he took my wife and children away from me. I had a sponsor that come off the road, and when I come out of the hospital, he would drive me to meetings. And I didn't have no clothes that fit, and he washed me. You women may remember those old wash and wear shirts. You hang them up soaking wet, and we had to go to meetings, look dressed up a little bit. And you know, it was tough. I slept in an attic. Now I know when they say I'm an alcoholic in an attic. I slept in an attic, third floor. I was freezing in the winter and dead boiling hot in the summer, you know. But I thank God I had a place to sleep. And my co-sponsor went back to drinking and he committed suicide in the Valley Ford truck showroom on Granger Road. Because his periods of sobriety were shorter than his periods of drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous plays tricks. People don't commit suicide when they're drunk. They do it when they're sober because they have to face a real world out here and if we don't give them anything between stopping drinking and the real world, it's our problem because we're failing to carry the message. And you know, then I continued on. I got a new sponsor. He weighed 100, I think Burns, remember when he spoke there? He weighed, a, he weighed 347 pounds when he became my sponsor because my sponsor went back to drinking. And he took me one night to Gethsemane. And I didn't want to go to that Trappist monastery to save my life because I hated God. I really did. And he took me there, and during the course, we drove all night. I'm thinking about it now. We had a, a, a 57 Chevy or something like that, and the thing was full of nicotine. And you know, they're all alive today. They, all that nicotine, that secondhand smoke. You know, I, when I think about it, me, most meetings are held outside now, and they're smoking. The meeting starts, they come in inside, they hear the lead, and boom, they go out again. Where's the fellowship? Our group still smokes. We have smoking. I don't smoke, but it's okay with me if you smoke. But you know, it was just a terrible ride. And when we got there, there was a priest there sitting there. And I, he, he looked at me and said, Kid, you don't seem like you're happy here. And I sat down next to him. I said, let me tell you something. You wouldn't be happy either. God took everything away from me. And he looked at me dead in the eyes. His name was Father Fall, Father John Doe, who wrote the Golden Books and Sobriety and Beyond, and Sobriety Without End. And he said to me, kid, God didn't take nothing away from you. You gave everything away and you sacrificed it on the altar of alcohol. If you're here tonight and you're bemoaning the fact you don't have a driver's license, remember, to drive a car is not a right, it's a privilege. To be married, your wife didn't divorce you because you got drunk one time. Your wife didn't divorce you because you cheated one time. Hell, I'd have got divorced many times, you know. I had a bad habit. Contagious one, too. <laughs> So anyhow, he said, that's, you know, that's it. And he said, that's step number one. Were you powerless? I said, kind of. He said, what do you mean? As I heard him say, light bulbs and that. He said, that's not what we're talking about. It. If you were a tree, would you want God, if God was a tree, would you want him to urinate on you? He said, was your life unmanageable? And I said, kind of. He then went through the litany. Three beauty salons, a school, three car, two cars, the three children, the home. And I didn't know where my wife was at. She took off and went to Florida and never heard no more from her until 1973. And the book says you don't have to have your wife, you don't have to have your children, you don't have to have a job, and you don't have to have a home to stay sober if you want it. I'm a firm believer if you want AA bad enough, you can get sober in the telephone booth. And I know people who did. I believe that. It sounds ridiculous, but I believe it. And then I come out of that, I come out of that and I'm having a bad time. 
and he keep on going. Next that day, he said to me, "Come back this afternoon. I want to talk to you." He said that was step number one. You're powerless. Step number two, you came to believe a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. I said, hold the papers. I got papers. I got papers at home that say I'm sane from the Ingleside Hospital for the mentally insane. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you've been here, as long as you've been here, almost a year or so, and you still think you can drink safely, you're nuts. So the second step is you're insane. How many of you people that don't even hold up your hands, because you know who you are, went back out to drinking, did it get any better? No. Did you come back to a meeting and say, I'm here back, I've been drinking, smoking crack, and having a great ball drinking wine, and I'm glad to be back in AA today, because I may stay another week and just to show you this thing works. <laughs> Isn't it just wonderful how they can do these things? And then, you know, it just got progressively, that wasn't good. And then one day a bunch of guys got together and they loaned me money to go back in the beauty business. And these men, are, most of them are dead now, God bless them. And then I went back in the beauty business. AA was not easy for me because I hated God. And then the third step, he says, you've made a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him. And he perfects the preface that by with the faith of a mustard seed or the faith of a child. Did you ever have a child stand at a table and jump off and he jumped right into your arms and you didn't know he was coming? But he had confidence that you were going to be there to catch him. And, you know, I was having a great time with Sister Ignatia, but she wouldn't let me sponsor anybody. And I said, why can't I sponsor anybody? She said, your attitude stinks. <laughs> Man, I didn't like her. Because not too before that, after I was going to trial for that IRS, I went there and I said, Sister Ignatia, would you go say a prayer for me in the chapel? Because I'm going to trial. And she said, Don, I want to tell you something. You better listen to me now when I tell you this. She said, you go pray for yourself because God likes to hear strange voices. And I just got hot. As I'm walking past her and I said, I'll fix you. She said, let me tell you something, Don. She said, when you leave here, you better remember. Pray daily because God is easier to talk to than most people. And she said, now if you want, and when you go there, just don't even tell them you're a member of AA because you give AA a bad name. I had those cards made. If you want them, I got some of them with me. And it says, pray daily. God's easier to talk to than most people. And in the last 20 years, I've distributed thousands of them. And you put them up. Most people are still carrying them in their wallet. I don't know if it's helpful. In the wallet, but they got it, you know. But, you know, and I was went to court, and the judge said to me, he said, kid, he said, and now I'm talking to Father Fall, and I'm scared. And he said, now, he said, that third step, you made a decision. You turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understood him with the faith of a mustard seed. He said, I want you to write down like it says in the book. And you know, I travel this country over and over, sometimes 25, 30 times a year at conferences. And I talk to many, many people. And my book says, being convinced. Now maybe my book is old. I told you, this is new and you, some of you open it up, you may find it different. Being convinced after A, B, and C, at once we proceed into the fourth step inventory, clear away the records of our past. I'm paraphrasing not, but at once is the word I'm looking for that you should highlight, because at once means now. At once means now, unless I read my dictionary wrong, I don't know. I could be wrong. I've been known to be wrong, not too many times though. 
But you know, and then it says we write, make a list of all the people we resent and the fears and the sex conduct. And he made me do that. And I went the next day and he looked at it and he had, so I talked to him about it. And he said, now he said, you got to take that fifth step. And listen to this now. You give that fifth step to God for forgiveness. You give it to yourself for humility. And you give, no, you give it to yourself for forgiveness. And you give it to yourself for humility. No one likes to look eyeball to eyeball and that's said in someone's eyes and tell them the exact nature of their wrongs. And he said, you take the deepest, deepest and darkest secret out that you want to take to your grave and you'll get that out first because the rest comes easy. And then he said to me, now what if you come home after a three-week trip and your refrigerator was went out of power, went off and everything was spoiling? What would you do? I said, what do I know? I clean it out. He said, that's what you do with your insides when you take that fourth step. You clean it out. You got to clean that out to make some other good stuff come in. I spent 13 retreats with that father before he died and we became great friends. And you know, I, I know what happens in my life that, and this fifth and sixth step or sixth and seventh step are the two easiest steps in the book. Because in sixth step, you stop doing the things you like. I know what you like, you young kids, because I was young. I had black hair when I came here. I knew what the hell it was about. I read the newspapers. <laughs> but you know, I knew what I had to do because I had a conscience. And then we got to be great friends. And I knew that my conscience dictates the way I live my life. I didn't have my kids. I didn't know where they were at. And one day in 1971, I married a girl that worked for me. And she had nine years of sobriety after she and we, uh, I got my kids back in 1973. One boy came off the plane suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, and that time it was an almost an unknown commodity. And they gave him shock treatments, and I didn't know what the hell was right or wrong. I had to believe the doctors. And, you know, I had a priest that was a good friend of mine, Monsignor Navicki, and I spent many nights talking to him because I didn't understand. I hated his mother, and I hated the guy she married because they had all my money, number one. And then they didn't want to take care of this kid. The court gave them the custody, and they didn't want him. So I took care of him. And I got married to this girl. And seven, well, by the time my boy come back, I'd been married two years. And the next eight years or ten years, that boy spent every year six to seven months in a mental hospital. You people in this room know for you people under five years, you are the only physician that can cure yourself. Your sponsor can't cure you. Your doctor can't cure you. Your pastor can't cure you. There's a pamphlet called If God Had Spoken to the Alcoholic. He didn't go to the intelligent lawyers or the doctors. He came to two lowly drunks, Dr. Bob and Bill. You're the only one, take this to the bank with you, that can cure your disease. And it requires work. And then my kid never got much better. In 1988, my kid was given a chance to try a new drug. And I thank God for the doctor that tried a new drug on me. And I lived because he, but he was suspended from the hospital for almost a year from practicing at that hospital because he used that new drug on me. Never been used since, you see. And you know, but then my son was getting these shock treatments and he would say, Dad, I want to die. This is the disease of the living dead. And finally one day they came out with a new drug called Clozarel. And we had the sign so we could take it because if he went back to being an animal, it was my fault, and I couldn't sue anybody. 
Not that I want this to, I wanted my son done. And I'm here to tell you that after all those years, my son is doing well. He comes to meetings with me, he just enjoys meetings. He's focusing, he's starting to see this world as it really is, that he never saw before. Because paranoid schizophrenia is absolutely the disease of the living dead. He would change places with anyone here tonight if he could be totally rid of it. But he can't because he has to be under medication. Then my wife never saw her no more. And the wife had nine years sobriety. And I could identify with, with Dick, you see, because my wife went back to drinking because her daughter had created a problem. And rather than use what she learned in AA, she went to a psychiatrist and he gave her a couple of pills. Don't know what he gave her, but within two weeks she was on, maybe people remember it, you women, paragoric, which is a direct derivative of opium. And she started with that, and within a year and a half she was dead. She died drunk. And I can understand how people live, how you al go through some of the crap, crap that we put you through. And you know, she didn't want to die. And I didn't want her to die, but I couldn't help her. And then you wonder, what did I do wrong, you know? And you know, there's nothing you could do wrong. There's nothing you could do right to make them decide they want to quit. It's their choice. I like these commercials that says, we'll cure your son even if he don't want to be cured. 30 days, $30,000. We'll help you. If, alcohol, if treatment centers had the answer, there would be everybody coming out would be sober and stay sober. They are only a place that tells you about the disease. If you want sobriety, you come to Alcoholics Anonymous every night at 8 or 8.30. And my wife died. And throughout the course of that time, God's been good to me. He's given me sicknesses. He's given me many things, many operations, strokes I had. And I've lived this long. I got something very seriously wrong with me now. I was talking about Burns and Brady with it, and he says, just keep an eye on it. But the only thing I can tell you is that I'm not afraid to die. In 19, 2000, my son and I were going to go to Italy, another son. And he called me up one day, and he's crying and screaming. Dad, he said, they just told me I have three to six months to live. And he had a tumor on the brain. And he went starting to get paralyzed on his whole left side. And I flew to Atlanta right away to talk to him. And this is the boy I used to worry about because he, he was in jail in Valdesta, Georgia for having a pipe with that marijuana on it, you know. And I let him stay in jail. And he said, Dad, this jail is bad. I said, if you were smart enough to get in there, not get smart enough to get your ass out. <laughs> and 22 days later when his trial came up, I went out and got him out, bailed him out. But you know, if you don't, treat them properly, and if you cuddle them up like little babies, we're not going to allow them to give a chance to grow. I know it sounds cruel, but I want to tell you something. Alcoholics Anonymous was never meant to cure the masses. It was never meant to cure everybody. Only 10% of the people in the world can ever become alcoholics because the body don't do it. Doctors will tell you that. Silkworth tells you that. And know this is the greatest program in the world. And all we got to do is 200 words in those 12 steps. If you don't believe me, there's just 200 words. Count them. I'll come through here someday again. Maybe I'll be dead when I come through, but tell me about it. And throughout it all, my son come through the point of hating God. And then we start talking about, he would say, Dad, how did you find God? And I would say, Donnelly's never been lost.
God is not lost. It's just that we walked away from him. And he has never been lost. He's been here all your life, taking care of you. And then one day I sent him the serenity prayer in a long form, and it changed his whole attitude. And he said, Dad, he said, that prayer made me realize that this thing I got, I'm going to have to pass away and go. And the thing that helped me the most is somebody wrote me a telegram on email. They brought it to my... And he said, John will be done. We'll be spending Christmas with God next year. And it made a big difference in my life. And I don't know about you people with page 449 or 539, whatever it may be. How do you accept something like that? How do you really accept that your kid is dying and that the red thing, I should have died first? How do you expect that thing to go through your brain? How do you accept it? Please tell me. You don't accept it, you live with it. That will always be a part of your life. It's getting easier, there's no doubt about it. I went to church Easter Sunday and I saw my son, he wasn't walking in cane, I was looking up at the crucifix up there and I saw him just walking as straight as an arrow and just laughing up there and having a good time. Because I think there's a process. We go when we're born and there's a time when we're going to die. And the time of death is a celebration. And I'm not afraid to go. Maybe when I get there I might, you know. But I will ask you one thing. When you get up there, he will say to you, what have you done for my fellow man? And you can say, I fed your sheep. Can you do that? If you were on trial for being a good member of AA, could they convict you? Think about it. Could you be convicted for being a good member of AA? Or could you be convicted because you were a visitor? Alcoholics Anonymous don't need too many more visitors. We need people with action. I, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm glad that I've met the people in the years I've traveled this country speaking, and I know a lot of people. This week it happened to be a reunion, a whole bunch. I didn't know they were all coming. But you know, it's been a beautiful ride. It's a process getting sober. And it's a process going back to drinking again. You will not leave here tonight and pick up a drink unless you pre-planned that drink back there somewhere a month ago. Everything starts with a thought. Alcoholics Anonymous teaches us that. And why people refuse to open the big book or they don't even know what the hell's in the big book and they're trying to tell people the right. I'm going to tell you the worst thing I find. And sometimes I, you see, when I'm at a conference, I sit and talk to people. Most people have not taken an inventory. And you know why? You know, this is going to be harsh. But listen, because I'm leaving tomorrow. Anyhow, <laughs> I also have a bunch of guys back there. The last names end in vowels, so they're pretty good. But we know what I find that somebody asks, why don't you take your four-step inventory? My sponsor says, I'm not ready. Well, how long have you been in AA? Almost a year, but I'm not ready yet. Get ready, your sponsor, because they will kill you. They are killing people today in AA because they're not sponsoring properly. This is the whole theme throughout the country when you get at a conference. Sponsorship stinks. And it's because no one wants to take time to give the right, proper words to these people. Some of those guys back there hated me for five years. And after they got drunk again, they called me to want me to sponsor them. See, because something happened. They knew that I was telling the truth. I'm not a hero, not by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a drunk who found life in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And you know this book does not say do not drink unless the new one minds say it. That new one happens to be a little sore spot in my heart. But that's only my opinion. I won't even open it up. I think it has AIDS. <laughs> you can tell your delegate that too. I don't care. But the thing is that this thing will work if you work it. And you've got to take that inventory. You have got to take that inventory. There'll come a day when these steps will rise up to meet you and there'll be a fork in the road you're either going to drink or you're going to kill yourself. In the last month, we lost five people in Cleveland. Suicide. Alcoholics get level. They level out. Level spells the same way, forwards and backwards. Think about that. But when you get on that other crap, marching powder and all that stuff, uh, it's tough. It's tough. And in closing, I don't know how long I've talked, and I think I talked long enough, I'm getting sore throat. And if I help someone, I hope I have, really. If I help one person here today, walks away with hope in their heart. And when we left Rosary Hall, there used to be a big sign, it said, take hope, all those who leave here. And the only thing we can give you is hope. Bill gave Bob hope. Bob and Bill gave Bill Dotson hope. And it wasn't always easy like we've got these here things today, these big conferences. And my problem is now that i got guys in my group want to evict me because I'm not home with my home group enough. But if they evict me, I'll start another group. <laughs> but I certainly want to thank you. And there's a member's eye view, a pamphlet called the member's eye view. For those who look for conference-approved literature, that's conference-approved. And it talks about John the Baptist's language in Herod's prison. And he said, go find my cousin Jesus and see if he's the Messiah. I'm paraphrasing this now, so I'm not remembering it word for word. And he said, if you find him, ask him if he's the Messiah and I can get out of jail. So he said, you go to and you find him. So they found Jesus walking along the river. He's talking to people in parables. And they said, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Because John wants to get out of prison. Jesus said, you only tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. And you tell them through the longest day and the darkest night, the good news, which was the gospel at that time, is being carried through Jerusalem. So he said, follow me. So as they followed down the road, they see a man laying on a cot, and Jesus said, drag your cot into the water. And when you come out, soak it for a while, when you come out, you'll be no longer lame. He dragged the cot into the water, stayed there about five minutes, and when he came out, he was no longer lame. And you know why he was not lame? Because he took an action. Action is the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then the blind man went in there, he put mud on his eyes and washed it off, and he saw. Again, that was action. He took an action. And then you know something? Honesty combined with action gives you a hell of a shot to getting this program right. Honesty is the heart of the AA program. After that comes action. Then the ten lepers were there, and they wouldn't go into the water because they would burn. The swords would burn. The skin was falling off. And in 1985, I was at the Hawaii conference, and Walter O'Keefe was a big movie star at one time. We went to the, in Malachi. They had the leper colony. And there were people in Alcoholics Anonymous in the leper colony. We didn't see, we had to wear masks and everything, but you know, their eyes were shining. You get sober through your eyes first. Your eyes start to sober up. 
and they didn't want to go in and they didn't want to go in and finally they all went in and when they came out they were all cleansed now there's a direct correlation between that and AA when they were all cleansed everybody was grateful and when they came out and there was only one who had gratitude he came back to help Jesus and we have the same correlation in AA a hundred go through one may come back and carry the message and if you're asking me what I've seen in the 41 years of Alcoholics Anonymous, I will see I've seen the blind see, I've seen the lame walk, and I've seen the sick get well, and through the longest day and the darkest night, I've seen the good news of Alcoholics Anonymous being carried the only way that it will ever be carried, one drunk to another. I want to thank you very much. I forgot to thank everybody who invited me here, and I couldn't even go to the bathroom. That's why I've been talking fast. <laughs> thank you very much.